Around four, the clouds cleared. We were able to see the full moon across the valley. I was part of something bigger. I was part of a movie. Next morning, we wake up to the sight of perfect swells coming off the point. And from then on, I said, I will always buy the last round of drinks. At Patagonia, we are climbers and skiers. We are surfers and anglers. We are activists and dreamers. Stories of the fabric of our shared culture, and we're proud to sponsor the Dirtbag Diaries. Visit us at Patagonia.com. Peace. P-E-A-C-E. What does that word mean to you? Is it the abstract hand sign you saw your parents flashing to one another in old photos? Is it the fleeting calm between nations? On a daily level, I bet you have a more concrete definition of peace. It's tired bones settling into sleep with the stillness of granite boulders. It's the calm skin of a lake, the morning's first warmth. Peace like a whispering river. In our day-to-day lives, peace, it's the absence of tension. It's the all-encompassing moment, the resolution, the destination, the wisdom. And it can only be reached with struggle, only by embracing the storm. I'm a patient, patient man, and I have been looking, waiting, for the perfect surfing story for almost three years. You all have been asking for it, and all I could say was patience. When it appeared in front of me, I knew exactly what to do, help tell this story. So I reacted, like the aged angler seeing the rising fish, or the surfer springing to his feet at the wave's peak. Today, writer and surfer Christian Beamish brings us three-eighths to eternity. A story about a homemade boat 800 miles of rugged Mexican coast, and a surfer in search of so much more than the perfect wave. I'm Fitzgerald Hall, and you're listening to the Dirtbag Diaries. A sturdy boat. 18 feet long and slung low to the water with a graceful curve. I build her out of marine plywood. It is lightweight and strong. I use hand tools, a block plane, a jigsaw, my surfboard planer to bevel the edges, and lots of clamps to hold everything in its place while the resin sets. Completed in my garage come boat shop in San Clemente in Southern California. The work takes one year and ten months of evenings and weekends. I name her Cormorant for the sleek black seabirds that fish the shallows. A Shetland Isle beach boat, the design is called. It's an open boat like a whaler's or a dorymans. The hull is black like natural licorice, and her lines suggest an affinity for the rush and blow of a white-capped ocean. Her sails glow red in the sun. There will be no motor. When I splash her and sail into the night off the beach in San Clemente, I make the first in a series of ever-expanding journeys. I use a jet ski cart and winch cormorant aboard, then roll her across the beach at sunset. 
The lifeguards do not like the look of things. But after nearly two years of labor, I will not be dissuaded. I tell them, it's okay. I'm a trained professional. Amazingly, they let me pass and watch as I fumble my way through the small surf rolling ashore and then set sail outside where I discover, as if by magic, that she actually works. The feeling is so great, such stillness, such an even, steady glide. I could sail to Morocco right then. I'm so stoked. Someone calls the harbor patrol and they come down on me a mile to seaward about 11 o'clock that night. You okay? They ask with their spotlight on my sail. Never better, I shout across. I make sure to thank them for looking out for me and they cruise off. I tack and run in, then row for shore by the lights of the pier, washing right in on the waves, drifting sideways like a board with no fin in. Some guys and girls at a fire ring come down to help drag the boat up the beach. People seem drawn to Cormorant, to her simplicity and singularity of purpose. Then there are surf trips to boat access breaks. Testing that proposition by crossing to the Channel Islands and poking around for a week, a nagging feeling begins to emerge. I have this craft, I think, but building her was only phase one. Phase two entails stretching the travel beyond a week to see what this is all about. I need a proper expedition, a journey of three or four months, and I come up with a plan to sail from San Diego to Magdalena Bay, about 800 miles south, surfing and camping the whole way. The idea works its way like a tangling vine through my thoughts, shutting down every other aspect of my life until all that remains is my going off for a time, alone. Various people tell me I'm crazy, of course. And there will be times on my journey that I'll be forced to agree with them. But I know Cormorant can run on the sea. I know this vessel is capable. I will go alone because it's easier. Alone in a stiff-necked self-sufficiency. After a while, though, I will come to realize that alone, with neither friends nor family nearby, one becomes a caricature, a shell of a person. December 31st, 2008. The big day has finally come. I've walked from my job, stowed my books with my patient and understanding father. My mother cries as we say goodbye on the phone. I tell her not to worry, that I'm built for this kind of stuff. My friends follow me in a skiff out to Point Loma. We embrace, leaning over the gunnels, and then they turn back, leaving me to prepare as Cormorant swings to anchor. I want to make the Coronado Islands, but on my shakedown cruises, which is what the other journeys to this point amount to, I've thrown orange peels in front of the bow and counted one Mississippi, two Mississippi, until they drift past the stern and determined that I don't make more than five knots, or six at best. But no matter my whole speed, I'm too damn tired to make the trip. With all the frantic preparation of the last few weeks, and I've come to realize the stress of leaving everything as I seem to do every few years. I sit wearied. A few weeks before, a friend with whom I've gone on numerous surf trips gives me a call and asks if on some level I'm trying to disappear at sea. I tell him, truthfully, that I'm not, 
but the fact that he feels the need to ask makes me think. I have planned methodically, though, spent more than a year doing those shorter missions. I wear my life vest, use a lifeline, carry a VHF radio and a GPS satellite beacon in case I really get into trouble. Naturally, I tell him, sailing a small boat along a desert shore has its risks, but they can be anticipated. Something works on me, though. Some combination of an adventurer's spirit and an embrace of the natural world. And then, on the shadow side, there's a yearning to escape. Escape what exactly is hard to say, but I've written to myself that I don't have the energy for any of the relationship I I'm in. This feels like a failing of sorts, a miserly spirit perhaps, but depression is a wily disease, whispering on one's shoulder, feigning advice. Deep in these glum meditations, something catches my eye at the waterline of my boat. A dead cormorant, my vessel's namesake, has washed up alongside. Its drowned head lolls back, tangled in a clump of seaweed, and it seems such a clear omen that I seriously consider calling off the trip. But another thought occurs to me when I pick up the cormorant and examine the thick dinosaur skin on its feet, its hard little claws and saber-like beak, and that is that my vessel is very well named. The following morning, I pull anchor and sail out on a light offshore breeze, pleased again at the prospect of starting the new year with a voyage. Later in the day, well past Tijuana, I examine my chart, trying to determine the compass bearing for the islands. I take a westerly turn and sail outward. Golden rays shine down through the clouds and fog, inspirational as all get out, but no islands. And I ask, how is it the big rock islands just a few miles off the coast can hide? It feels as though an unseen hand buoys us up and pulls us along. It is the quiet I love, the holding one's breath, or it's like holding one's breath, but easy, no strain, just gliding all day. I hear the winged beats of the pelicans as they pass, a little creaking of the masts, the dewlap and slip of the water. We're so silent and small a presence on the sea that the creatures don't seem to notice us although dolphins swim by to investigate, but we disappoint them because we're too slow to race. Later, a mama and baby gray whale swim over one calm, sunny afternoon, right close off the starboard rail. When I stand to take a picture, they disappear in a flurry of bubbles, like submarines. Sometimes I hear squeaks and clicks of dolphin voices. I catch a glimpse, finally, the merest hint of a ridgeline, and I sail for that spot, coming to the southernmost edge of the islands in the very last light of the day. My boat tent is a simple affair. Ten-foot flexible fiberglass battens braced in the gunnels and bowed over from one side to the other like hoops on a covered wagon. I pull a canvas tarpaulin over and lash the bottom edges in place. With a glowing candle lantern, I have a closed-in space in which to cook and more or less get out of the elements. There's leftover rice and a half-cooked butternut squash from the night before, which I boil up and soak in olive oil and dash heavily with salt and pepper. With the jazz riffs on the radio, the radio that will be dead with salt water in two days, 
I note that the first leg of my journey has come off just fine, and that with plenty of rice and beans and lentils and dry soup powder and oatmeal and yams and onions and garlic and four pounds of chocolate and lots of coffee grounds and pancake mix and syrup, I am as prepared as I can be. Fishing trawlers are anchored along a half-mile stretch of the island, their lights glaring off the afterdecks over the dark water, generators running. In the morning, of course, men come around in launches to check the pins, circular nets 30 feet across and suspended from buoys with a raised fence all the way around, about 10 feet high. These dot the northern coastline of Baja, filling up many of the coves to store the fish brought in from far offshore, one assumes. Estás solo? The fishermen call to me. See, I reply, my first interaction of many to come. Good-natured, every one of them I'll meet on this trip. The fishermen are surprised at my choice of craft. Yes, it's a very small boat, I agree. Then add, pero muy suave con las olas, as some sort of rationale. As I get further down the coast and the conditions get wilder, this reasoning will seem less logical. But on this gray dawn, at my first anchorage in Mexico, it all seems reasonable enough. ¿A dónde vas? The men ask. Bahia Magdalena, I tell them. Poco a poco, little by little. There are clean little waves peeling inside about a quarter mile away, one golden sunrise morning. And I pull anchor, row over, reset, change into my wetsuit and jump overboard with my 6-7. The outline carries some width and thickness forward, so she feels good to paddle. I've put two wings in the tail section, stepping the outline down as it comes into a squash tail. It's a single fin that I call the Terry Fitzgerald model in honor of the Sultan of Speed, whose boards this one is meant to emulate. That first crisp wave of the morning, the green face drawn taut before me, I've sailed 50 miles to ride this one, offers a sweeping shoulder and I lay into a turn that on the single fin is like cash money. Nothing false, a pure line, surfing joy. Slack winds are the bane of sailing life. Nothing to do, but if you're eight miles offshore and still miles from your next island destination, you might go to oars, which feels a little ridiculous in such a vastness, like walking across the Sahara. It's so ridiculous that you might feel like goofing a little and sing some Motown to the passing sea lions who raise their heads out of the water and sway back and forth as if confused by your very presence. There will be long days interspersed with moments of sublime beauty and abject terror. I will awake one night, 350 miles into the journey, in a desert cove of the Valle de los Sirios, and see cormorant shadow cast perfectly onto the sand bottom. Clouds boil up in the deep night sky, glowing in a starry dreamlight. I reach my hand up and stare. On another morning, I will row over kelp beds in water so clear it is like looking into an aquarium. Abundant fish life, seals gliding through, seamless and smooth. I catch some of those fish, too. Into the pot with you. After a cursory grilling with onions, the fish goes with the rice and yams that make the base for the stew, and then there are two days of nourishment. And this kind of grub makes one want to surf. 
There are funny rock burbo waves that maybe really aren't surfing waves, but anchored in a cove, I paddle over and offer greetings to the seals who slip below, unimpressed, even though I tell them I've sailed all the way from San Diego. A storm catches me in that midnight moonlight cove and I row ashore, running the surf line and washing in amongst the fishermen's pongas, the men running down to help drag my boat across the beach, then hooking a line to their truck to drag her completely clear and up the berm. I am nearly out of food. They give me a plate and share their large pot of beans with beautiful hunks of pork and diced onion. Next morning, with the high tide and storm surge, Cormorant gets sandwiched between two pongas, the thick fiberglass hulls cracking open one of her planks for a few feet along the port side, and I spend the following days repairing the break and discover that I've brought just enough fiberglass rope, resin, and thickener to do the job. One evening, the gray skies breaking up after the rain, I run out to the point and ride intense little waves maybe only chest high but reeling fast off the sandbar. Because I've come so far, because I'm alone, I feel very involved with each takeoff, with each paddle stroke, the silver glintings of light on the slate-colored water. And terror? Well, perhaps that is too strong a word, but I certainly run the gamut of emotions, realizing finally that a man alone, alone and continually exposed to the elements, will wear through all of his layers until he is raw. A full moon rises over the arroyos. Stars shine down like a compliment and sparkle across the water. I'm a mile and a half offshore, well swaddled against the cold when the wind falls away suddenly. The air goes dry and carries the smell of desert sage, and I know that this is all the warning I will get. A Santa Ana, known as El Norte in Baja, is brewing. A hot and fierce wind that can knock a boat right over. I scramble forward to drop the mainsail, and not one minute later I see the wind line out across the water a half mile behind, roaring down and tearing at the surface like a swarm of locusts. The wind does not slam into us so much as gather us up and sling us forward. We surge ahead, the entire hull vibrating with a strange hum as we rush down the swells, running too fast into the troughs. With both hands on the tiller, I must pull hard to steer slash surf the boat clear of a capsize. A couple of steep lurches put us right on the beam ends with the sickening feeling of going over. I think of nothing beyond keeping the boat before the wind. The unlit shore is mute and abandoned, the sea whipped into a frenzy, electric blue, with the foam flashing white in the moon glow. Tendrils of kelp slap the hull, wrapping the rudder, only to snap free like fingers losing their grip. The mizzen whips around with such velocity that I'm afraid the mast will break and crack my skull. The high cliffs of Punta Colonet lie ahead somewhere in the darkness, perhaps 15 miles away. I will have to sail for hours and hours, spray pelting my back in shot blasts. If I can keep before this blow and keep from running up on a reef, I am hopeful of shelter in the lee of the point. The planks on Cormorant's sides are three-eighths of an inch thick. This is the distance between myself and the depths. Mm -hmm.
At some point, despite the water in the hull sloshing about my ankles and my aching hands on the tiller, I recognize that my boat is handling herself, that her pointed stern breaks the steepest waves off to either side, and that there is even a little fun in amongst the fear and racing along the swells, occasionally linking up two of them for a long, skimming ride. In my loudest and clearest, I sing the old Anglican hymn, Morning Has Broken, in a kind of prayer. And in all seriousness, I am learning to pray on this journey. I've come in good and close by now, spray blowing back from the crashing surf just a couple hundred yards in. The high cliffs of Colonet loom ahead, and as I had hoped, when I sail to the base of the sheer walls, the wind passes far above off the mesa, and I could give that old shaly face a hug and a kiss for the shelter it provides. I set anchor, then put surf booties on over my wet wool socks and wrap up in the mainsail to try and rest, still wearing my life jacket. The moon and starlight have burned into my eyes and swirl hypnotically behind my lids. But none of this conveys the ragged emotion I feel, the sheer exhaustion, the slaking fresh water I pour down my throat, the handfuls of trail mix I mash into my mouth, the shaking of my hands. With the weird points of light in my vision, I wonder if this is what dying might be like. I've been thinking a lot about how to get out and around Punta Eugenia, the big fish hook on the map of Baja about halfway down the Pacific side. I'm six weeks into the journey. If I hug the coast, I will eventually have to work into the wind and against the North Pacific current. But Cormorant's light form doesn't generate enough momentum to counter much resistance. So I decide to cut straight across to Cedros Island from further up the coast. It's 55 miles out thinking that once I make the island, I can run down past the point with the current. This is no small thing. It's not like 55 miles up to the airport on the freeway. It's 55 miles off a wilderness shore, along a notoriously wind-scoured part of the world. The fishermen shake their heads up at the San Carlos camp. They don't like the north side of the island, especially my friend Aurelio. He says even big fishing trawlers have gone down there says the currents are really bad. If I'm going to do it, he says, pick a day without much tide change. I hang in another beautiful and remote cove for three days before the crossing, watching the weather and trying to gauge, based on cloud cover and the general mood of the day, the right time to set out. I had sailed here in a gale with big breaking seas all around, not quite as radical as the night of the Santa Ana winds, but still, with big swaths of foam coming over the rail and smothering the boat, Cormorant is so lively, she just springs back up like a bird shaking the water off her wings. Valentine's Day. Not that it matters much for a sunburnt sea rover like me. My plan is to take off late in the morning, with the thought that if the conditions turn ugly, I can scoot back to the mainland before dark. But the wind stays steady, and by sunset, I'm 20 miles offshore, with greenish swaths across a great cloud sky like a giant watercolor, 
and the island a distant silhouette. The crossing is 36 hours, all through the first afternoon and overnight with bright Venus above my right shoulder as a guide, and I stare fixedly at a point 50 feet in front of the bow and pray every so often, thinking of St. Brendan and his crazy 5th century sea voyages in a cura of wood frame and leather not much bigger than Cormorant. Just this moment, I tell myself. Now, this moment. I check my compass bearing by headlamp. A quarter moon peeks out from behind cloud banks. This is so far. It's so vast. So dark. It is awesome in the root sense of that word. The dawn breaks blue as if the air itself is infused. The island ridge stands so tall and massive that it looks like it is right there, but it is not right there. And I sail all day, pointing as close as I can into a south wind until I realize that I won't make the town and decide to cut in straight for any cove I can find, fighting crazy willy that gust to 30 knots then fall away completely, leaving short, steep waves. I drop the sails to try and row, but I cannot because we're rocking so heavily that the oars continually pop out of the locks. My face is swollen and my lips cracked. My hair is a matted, oily mass and I feel listless, unable to react to the conditions at hand. I have become raw. And I'll tell it. It has become too hard. The ocean is too intense. I am too alone, too exhausted. I'll tell another thing. I cry. I watch the island slip by as I'm pulled northward in the current, thinking about what the fishermen have told me about the north end, a graveyard for my little boat. It's too damn hard with no sleep, with no food in my belly, and with this devil current I do not understand. I manage to get in close enough to anchor throw the hook off a nondescript patch of broken rock and set to cooking the last of my beans and lentils. I pour sugar and olive oil in for whatever extra food value these might provide and hold the stove and pot steady with a towel as steep, mean waves slap and rock the hull. A ponga appears from the north. The helmsman is, is silver-haired and his mate a younger man. The older man tells me, pull your anchor, give me your bow line. You cannot stay here. It isn't safe. They tow me into in port without saying another word. I tie off Cormorant to their ponga on a mooring in the harbor and we pile into their van. When we walk into the house, the captain, Caterino, says to his wife, Angelita, look what we caught in the net today. They set up a cot for me below in, a, in the tool room. That night it pours down rain and the wind howls. Over dinner, the men explained that they never fished the side of the island that they found me on. It was only because of the south wind they went up there. No words were spoke. Somebody let me Caterino's daughter Paula and her husband Diego and their little one Dieguito become my friends. Something is at work here. I stay with them for a week. I go to mass because I feel I've been delivered. After a week of rest and Angelita's unbelievable meals, sopes and machaca, carne asada and chicken soup with 
chopped vegetables from their little farm up in the Arroyo, fed by a spring, and pan dulces I buy for the family every day at the bakery, and most blessed of all the morning and afternoon cups of coffee, I feel ready to continue. Caterino says that if I want to continue, I should leave my boat with him, and take the ferry to Guerrero Negro, then take the bus to Magbay if that's where I want to go. He says he would never, emphasizing nunca, go to sea in my little boat. Muy suave con las olas sounds patently ridiculous out here. At the southern end of the island, the entire North Pacific seems to pull around the point, the water moving in a mass like the currents under the Golden Gate, a big, swirling patch roiling over itself and torn at by the winds. Still, we've come through a lot, so I give it a try. But when Cormorant meets that ugly water, her bow is shoved off leeward, even as her full sails try and pull her forward. We rise and plunge, but we make no distance, sitting for hours in line with the rocks at the tip of the island. When I turn back, the current carries us to port very swiftly, as if to say, look how easy it can be if you just submit. I try the next day, and the next day I am turned A savage wind comes up the third day, and it feels like the spring gales in Northern California that I know they get down here, too. I've been warned about these, but I thought I would just wait out the worst days. I think of the open coast ahead. There are fewer coves to shelter in from here on out, and 75-mile stretches to cover. I imagine the anatomy of the disaster. He was alone, the Coast Guard official would say, in his homemade boat. He was exhausted and that multiple of factors led to poor decisions, and he was lost. I realize then that I have met my limit. It is nearly 500 miles I've come. Cooperativo Ancedros has a supply trawler that runs between the island and Ensenada. The men, these fishermen who live day by day, will hoist Cormorant aboard and deliver her north. They care for my equipment, and all of it comes back with the boat. I'll fly to Ensenada, take the bus and walk across the border, then drive back down with my trailer to pick up my good, good lady. From the dual-prop Cessna, 3,000 feet over the tortured rock of Cedros, I look across the long miles of open water to the faint sliver of the mainland. For the first time on this journey, I shudder at what could have been, at everything that could have gone wrong. The flight goes right up the coast, and the tears well up again as I think of all those days, all that distance. I haven't said much about the people, the fishermen in the camps, but that might be another story entirely. The story of Hermanos del Mar, willing to do whatever they can to help a fellow seafarer. Crossing to Cedros, I left the coastal cruising environment and entered the realm of true offshore work, which my vessel is not suited. But now, having regrouped in my little seaside town, thinking again how Cormorant glides, how it feels to row in still water, sail in a good breeze. Oh, she glides. She's so light, so silent and lovely. I know her best use now. 
trailer to the chosen stretch of coast, just like I've done in California. Take a few weeks, fully immerse, ride some waves, read, fish, eat, pray, come back home, keep a home. A person needs a house to live in. Spend some time with friends. Tell your parents that you love them. Think about getting a dog and a doggy life jacket. Writer Christian Beamish is the former editor of the Surfer's Journal. He lives in San Clemente, but this man does not gather moss. He's back off to Baja, and later this summer, he will be cruising the coast of Vancouver Island looking for surf. Music today by Limbic System, Sicane, Deertick, West Indian Girl, and Sun Parlor Players. You can find more information and stream the cuts at our homepage, dirtbagdiaries.com. Okay, so our first batch of Dirtbag Diaries t-shirts, yeah, we've been sold out for a bit, but Walker has told me that he's restocked and added a couple different designs. So go to our website, look on the sidebar, and you'll see a, you'll see a link there. So click on the link, go check out the new designs, all profits go towards the creation of the show. If you've got a story idea or a comment, feel free to drop us a line at dirtbagdiaries at earthlink.net. You can also find us on Facebook and Twitter, although I will admit I think I've been spending more time outside than I have been checking out Facebook. Support for the diaries comes from the good people at Patagonia. Right now there is the sickest surfing shot up on their homepage, patagonia.com. I'm not a surfer, but it blew my mind, so go check it out, and while you're there, see what Patagonia is up to. Additional funding comes from New Belgium Brewing. I'm Fitz Cahal, that was Christian Beamish, and you've been listening to the Dirtbag Diaries. <laughs>